When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I would appeal to all supporters of the Ballykilferet Gumbain Party to stand firm in their political convictions. If some long-haired dropout in a pair of sneakers confronts you and says, what are your politics? You look him straight in the Adam's apple and say, whatever you say yourself, sir. Or better still, if he asks you whether you're a Gumbain or not, you just... Hit him a glancing blow with a qualified maybe. These weirdos and dropouts must be let know that the Ballykilferret Gumbin party may or may not take abuse lying down. Now, there has been a lot of talk lately about what is known as equality of opportunity. <laughs> now, I ask you, how could you have what is known as a good job if everyone else's job was just as good as yours? Remember, equality of opportunity could mean that this entire country could slide into total democracy. So remember that the Ballykilferet Gumbain Party needs you. And also remember that one day you might need the Ballykilferet Gumbain Party. You never know when you might need a favour. <laughs> Thank you. One of the many voices of actor and satirist Frank Kelly. Ireland has a long tradition of political satire which stretches back to the days of Dean Swift. But what of the state of satire in modern Ireland? We talk to some satirists about their work and the reactions of their subjects or victims... We hear examples of Irish political satire since the early days of Dublin Opinion and we question if there is a crucial role for satire in society. That leading Irish satirist Frank Kelly certainly thinks that satire is much more than a bit of fun. I think it's true to say that if you value democracy, uh, it must follow that you will value satire. And that's a little alarming as a concept just at the present time because people don't seem to value satire as much as they might and it might indicate uh, a disillusionment with democracy and its processes. Satire is so old, it goes back to the Greeks and came through the Romans and so on. And it's never been particularly safe to be a satirist. It might, some people might say that it's, it's a somewhat unsafe position to be a, a public representative, but it might be equally unsafe to be a satirist too. Um, it's to be noted that in totalitarian regimes, which are very intolerant of any dissident opinions, as they would term them, the first people to get the chop are the satirists. 
Satire wouldn't be too welcome in Poland at the moment. I think a satirist would want to keep changing his address pretty rapidly. Um, I don't think satire would be very welcome in Chile or Salvador at the moment. And that, to me, is always uh, indicative of a very unhealthy political climate. Satire was uh, very inadvisable uh, a couple of hundred years ago in England. Um, so I think satire is a necessary kind of purgative within the political mind and life of a nation. The problem with satire and with humour in general is that the more you talk about it and the more cerebrally you talk about it, the more boring it sounds and the more unfunny. It's like analysing any humour. Once you dissect a joke, it's just dissected and it has no surprise elements in it because the basic ingredient of all good humour is irony. And that's the value of satire. If you can point out the apparent and sometimes not so apparent contradictions of political life, you can keep people aware of the possibilities of serious error politically. Very often, people identify satire with something that's frothy and perhaps just peripheral to the serious business of living. But you know, people actually go mad without it. People become disoriented without um, this perspective on where they're going. Somebody's got to be able to make the joke or it's all too damn serious and everybody gets very depressed and everybody starts to do rather silly things because that ingredient isn't there. They're just too cerebral. The literary journal Dublin Opinion was for more than 40 years the major outlet in Ireland for satirical writing and cartoons. Its founding father and editor, the late Charles E. Kelly, outlined his reflections on its role and achievements during an RTE interview in 1980. Dublin Opinion first came into being through <coughs> the accidental coming together of three people. Now, <coughs> you could call them lunatics because that's what they were. They had no money, they had no experience, they only had the urge to do this thing in a humorous magazine. And we just came together by pure accident. First, Arthur Booth and myself, we decided to make a, have a dash, have a bash at it. And then I brought in Tom Collins and uh, the three of us then worked together Arthur died in 1926, four years after it started, and Tom and I then carried on the magazine uh, until the end of 1968. We never thought of ourselves, we never took ourselves seriously, we never thought of ourselves as having a mission. You must remember that we came out right uh, almost exactly with the beginning of the Civil War, three months before it, and that was a very terrible atmosphere, brother against brother, son against father and all that, and no one would ever have dreamed of being satirical in that time. Our whole, any mission or sense of mission we had at that time was uh, really to try and do something for peace, to bring uh, reconciliation. We made fun of the new army, made fun of the new civic army, made fun of the government, fun of the personalities, but never in a, a hurtful way. Uh, we set out purely to poke fun, to, to light on the things they said and did and make what fun we could about them. And we would, for instance, portray um, De Valera and Sean T. O'Kelly as a pair of characters, one exaggeratedly small, the other exaggeratedly tall, and a kind of Mutt and Jeff combination. And we, we didn't... We, we, as I say, we, we commented in cartoon on what they said and did, but not with any party political alignment of any kind. The main thing was to get a laugh, and if the laugh could be joined in by the victim, we felt we had succeeded really well. The politicians' response in the main was that they did laugh. They were rarely, if ever, as far as I knew, annoyed by anything we did. And they never felt we were letting the politicians down as a body. 
as an example of the, the unlikely response, where you might expect perhaps uh, a little bitterness in the response, if there were a response at all, uh, this is a good, a good uh, example of, of the surprise one can get. I had done a cartoon in 1948 uh, when uh, John Coslow declared Ireland a republic while he was in Canada. Uh, that was followed in 1949, I think, by an act of the British Parliament guaranteeing the position of the North and sort of uh, uh, putting the seal on partition for the time being, you might say, at any rate. But um, we had a car- I did a cartoon showing uh, Brookborough sitting by a cradle as a babysitter, knitting, and uh, in the cradle was rolled up the, the Ireland bill with a tape round it and a soother in its mouth and a baby's face on the top of it, you see. And John Bull was linking Britannia out, out the door, going out for the evening. And the title of it simply was The Babysitter. It, it was quite uncomplimentary to uh, Brookborough. I mean, it made very little of him, if you like. It was a pretty true statement of the situation. But the surprise was that uh, shortly after that, I had a letter from uh, Lord Brookborough's secretary asking could he acquire the original of the cartoon, that he'd very much like to have it. So uh, we, as usual in such cases, presented it to him with our compliments. And he had a very nice letter back from her saying uh, that the cartoon would be framed and would hang in his instrument house, his official residence. We thought that was uh, very amusing. And uh, I, I sent the, the correspondence to John Costello, who was Taoiseach, just to let him, to give him a little... Uh, insight into the makeup of Brookborough, which might be useful politically, as you never know. Anyway, it would show him that there was something behind this uh, very orange face that we were used to looking at, which we wouldn't credit with a sense of humour. And John Costler replied to me, he's very grateful to see the correspondence, and uh, he said it convinced him of one thing, that it might be better if the solution of partition were left in the hands of humorists rather than in those of politicians. You uh, asked for a meeting, Mr Arnold? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, well, uh, our duty is to set up a department to add two and two. Ah, that should be easy. One reasonably educated man should be able to do it. Shall we say one clerical officer? Well, he would do for the actual addition, uh, but we must record that the addition has been made. Oh, good. Uh, another clerical officer. Uh, then, of course, in the public interest, we must have somebody to check that the addition has been accurately made and correctly recorded. That means, shall we say, uh, a minor staff officer? Mm, he would be sufficient, but as there will be a great many twos and twos to add and subsequently record... We shall need a records officer to store the edition cards and the record books in, in which the operations are recorded. Or shall we say three writing assistants and a clerical officer with, say, a minor staff officer? <sighs> well, we've got so far. Uh, but we shall need one officer of higher standing to correlate the work of the branches and generally exercise supervision to prevent waste of public time. Uh, we'll make it one higher executive officer. And, of course, a messenger. Uh, two messengers. We have to remember annual leave and unavoidable absences through illness or other cause. The work must go on. Uh, we must take that into account, too, in arriving at the numbers of staff of other grades. Uh, for example, the writing assistant and the clerical... Mm, agreed. Uh, what have we got now? Uh, three writing assistants, three clerical officers, two minor staff officers, a higher executive officer... And two messengers. Ah, well, let us treat that as a basic minimum. We must provide now for the expansion that will come as the work of the department grows. 
We must have trained personnel to meet that natural expansion and we must provide for such exigencies as annual leave and absence owing to illness, accident or other unavoidable cause. Supposing we increase the numbers in lower grades? Mm, that would be the most economical procedure. We can call upon them in times of emergency to perform the duties of the grade immediately above them. Oh, let's see now. To meet natural expansion, annual leave, accidental absences, etc. Shall we make it uh, ten writing assistants? Oh no, better make it the round dozen. Eight clerical officers, three minor staff officers, two higher executive officers and four messengers. Very well. Though I think that as far as natural expansion is concerned, we're cutting it a bit fine. Still, our watchword must be economy. Connor Farrington and Brendan O'Doul there with a taste of that unique brand of humour for which Dublin opinion was famous. Frank Kelly inherited from his father not only his interest in satire, but also an awareness of the need for strict ethics in dealing with the politicians who were the subject of the satirist's art. My father edited uh, Dublin Opinion for 47 years. Uh, he must have been a very brave and uh, very mature young man for his age. I think at about the age of 17 he put his life savings into Dublin Opinion with his beloved and wonderful colleague Tom Collins, whom I knew very well. And with Arthur Booth, uh, whom I didn't know, he was the father figure of the triumvirate. I didn't know him. Uh, he died when I was very young. But um, they came on the political scene in Ireland at a time when there was great need for reconciliation. There was tremendous bitterness between treaty and anti-treaty factions. And their sense of humour contributed enormously to a climate of reconciliation. And the reconciliation was a very slow process. And of course, all this dung was still being thrown in the doyle to my memory, in, even up to the late 50s and early 60s. But Dublin opinion had a kind of softening influence on the bitterness of the climate. And it contributed very positively towards uh, Irish political development in that way. Um, the effect and the power of the cartoon can never be underestimated. It's infinitely more powerful than a thousand words of prose, or perhaps two thousand words of prose. When Fiona Foyle, for example, wanted to abolish PR and introduce the straight vote, which was a very, very uh, shrewd political move, and not one which I would uh, totally not admire from a political point of view if I were a political tactician. But when they wanted to remove uh, proportional representation and introduce the straight vote, um, it would have resulted in an almost indefinite tenure of power uh, by Fianna Fáil, who were the strongest party at the time. They were the monolithic, disciplined party with the strongest party whip. Um, and my father drew a cartoon in Dublin Opinion and the scene was a classroom, and there was a teacher, and he had a line of boys beside him in ever-diminishing heights, down to almost floor level, like the old Fry's cocoa ad, growing up on Fry's, the family of all the different heights. But he had these schoolboys beside him in the class, this teacher, and each boy held an apple in his hand, and the caption read, Under PR, each boy gets an apple. Under the straight vote, the big boy gets the lot. Now, to my certain knowledge, Sean Lamas was shown that cartoon at the time, and he virtually danced in rage. I don't know whether he actually danced in rage, but certainly figuratively he did when he was shown that cartoon, because it, it almost single-handedly destroyed Fianna Fáil's campaign to uh, get rid of uh, proportional representation. Um, the question of the ethics of satire arises. There's often a lot of confusion 
among the kinds of people who review books. When 40 years of Dublin opinion and 30 years of Dublin opinion, when these collections of cartoons and prose writing from Dublin opinion came on the market, they were savaged by certain clever, rather cerebral critics um, as not having sufficient teeth. But what these people forget is that as a professional satirist, part of the business is remaining in business. You don't lose your audience in one glorious week. You must educate them, you must woo the beggars along and keep them with you and create some sort of cult so that you can keep educating them satirically. And this is what my father and Tom Collins achieved after the death of Arthur Booth for so long. This was their achievement. They had a, a very, very strong ethical code about satire. They were both very deeply Christian, both very Catholic men, and very much of their time, um, although they saw a long way ahead. And their ethic was that you never wounded a person personally if you could avoid it. You would only wound insofar as he could be identified with public life. And it went without saying that you'd never uh, uh, probe into somebody's private life. And you would never say uh, that somebody had a wart on his nose if he had a wart on his nose, because it would be entirely gratuitous. Um, and indeed, when my father cartooned people with facial blemishes of any kind, he, he went very softly around those areas, because he believed that his Christianity demanded of him something constructive on a satirical level in the political life of the country. One satirist whose work formed a bridge between the demise of Dublin opinion in 1968 and our own day was Donald Foley. He poked fun at many aspects of Irish society for ten years in his Irish Times column. Connor Farrington reads a relevant passage from Man Bites Dog, written in 1973. Brian Baru for Oris on Dublin political circles were agreed last night that Mr Brian Baru had been accepted as an all-party candidate for the presidency. Baru... 859, a former terrorist and unemployed labourer, now lives in Hoth, close to the scene of his greatest triumph in Clontarf. A native Irish speaker, he does occasional stints for Gay Lynn. It seems that Brian Brew was accepted after a lengthy, contentious meeting on the grounds that he was a traditional Catholic. He was killed with an axe while saying his rosary. A number of other famous Irish leaders were mentioned for the job, but agreement could not be reached for various reasons. Theobald Wolfe Tone was rejected on the grounds of his heavy drinking and illicit relations with women. Porrick Pierce's School for Small Boys came under suspicion. Parnell was unacceptable because of his Kitty O'Shea affair. A suggestion from Sinn Féin Gardner Place that Strongbow be nominated as an ecumenical gesture was dismissed out of hand. St Patrick was rejected on grounds of age and his dubious origins. Objections to Mr. Baru being nominated because he was feared dead were dismissed as a mere technicality. Being dead was considered an advantage. And may I ask you to throw your minds back a few years to the time when we in the National Coalition seemed deeply embattled. To 1976, which was a very bleak year, or seemed so at the time. The opinion polls showed us trailing badly. The business community was loudly complaining about us. And the Frank Hall show was dining richly off us every Tuesday night. (laughs) 
It's true that the dimensions of today's mess are daunting. Every single indicator, no matter where you look, every single one, unemployment, inflation, the balance of payments deficit, the size of the national debt, the level of investment, the growth in GNP, every one of these indicators is far, far worse than in 1976, the black year in Fianna Fáil folklore, the year of the Minister for Hardship in Frank Hall folklore. And where's Hall's Pictorial Weekly while all this is going on? <laughs> the National Coalition, of course, were accused very generally of wanting to intimidate RTE and muzzle the media. But the National Coalition, Liam Cosgrave, Gareth Fitzgerald, yes, and the Cruiser, they were able to take the weekly roasting they got from the Frank Hall show and enjoy it. I speak anyway for myself. <laughs> I enjoyed seeing my own colleagues get an occasional touch. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. O'Hahi's government it's too full of Republican purity to go in for direct censorship. Oh, no, that's not their style. But do they need to when they have some helpful little man somewhere ensuring that the harsh glare of television satire never lights on their delicate skins? Professor John Kelly, speaking to the Fine Gael Ordesh in 1981, draws attention to one of the major milestones in Irish political satire, Hall's Pictorial Weekly. But was its importance exaggerated? Professor John A. Murphy. Even before the coalition government came in, um, getting airful of this was certainly uh, on the go at that time. But there again, there were, as I say, <clears throat> bland and benign, rather funny conversations between the then Taoiseach Jack Lynch and his wife Maureen. Um, but there was no malice in them whatsoever. Now, I'm, I'm not so sure malice is the correct word to describe the particular bite in the Frank Hall programme and in the later years of getting fearful of this, but it certainly transcended the purely benign brand of humour. So I think it added up to um, a, a, a programme with great satirical bite, and I would think, on the whole, its effect was damaging. If you remember the individual depictions of individual ministers, uh, they were described in terms of, not to put too fine a point in it, lechery or greed or um, begrudgery. Um, you know, the, 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 the characteristics that were satirised were in themselves very unattractive. And, uh, and so I, I would think it was very damaging to, to a young electorate um, which in any case regarded this government as fuddy-duddy establishment. Uh, if I'd been a government minister, naturally I'd like to have stayed in the news. In fact, during the long reign of Dublin opinion, um, all ministers and opposition personalities got a fair crack of the whip. But certainly if I had been um, 
one of three or four or five particular government ministers in the period from 73 to 77, I would have been very worried about the impact of the Frank Hall program. I mean, there is a limit to the Barnum dictum that all publicity is good publicity. Good evening. It's a great pleasure for me to come here this evening to say a few words in favour of Hall's Pictorial Weekly. As you know, Mr Hall, or Frank as I call him in private, missed no opportunity to give me a bit of publicity on the show. I owe it all to him that I became such a popular figure with the general public. <clears throat> Sometimes it was a bit embarrassing. Indeed, I asked him to lay off several times. People are beginning to talk, I told him. But he wouldn't hear it, no. No minister, he said, he always treated me with great respect, which is more than some of his colleagues could say. Or mine, either. No minister, says he, I am determined to see that you get what is coming to you. And Mr Hall is a man of his word. I often thought I, I got more than was coming to me, but there was no stopping him, though God knows I did my best. His enemies and mine said I paid him to do it, but he never took a single penny. What I was after on the Minister for Hardship was his apparent lack of confidence in himself on television. Uh, and that being so, it's always there. It was there anyway. I mean, I was not inventing something. I was merely reflecting something that I had already seen. So, I mean, I've suggested the, the lack of confidence or, or, or whatever it caused in the viewers was not caused by us, but by caused by the, the originals rather than the copies. A reminder there of the voice of the much-loved Minister for Hardship and a word from the real Eamon Morrissey. Well, another conspirator in Frank Hall's plot was, of course, Frank Kelly. The opinions of Professors Kelly and Murphy have not convinced Frank of the political impact of Hall's Pictorial Weekly. It was said that Hall's Pictorial was instrumental in bringing about the downfall of uh, the inter-party government at that time. Um, I don't think... Um, Hall's Pictorial Weekly was directly responsible for bringing about the downfall of that government. I think that uh, it was able to identify fairly easy targets at the time because that government was full of a lot of rather eccentric people. You see, it's easier to cartoon people who have good, salient, eccentric points. And in that particular government, you'd have a government minister making a statement to the press, which would be published on a Monday morning, and by tea time, that day, one of his colleagues would have contradicted him and probably come out with a memorable phrase which we're still using. Um, Hall's pictorial was accused of not going hard enough on Fianna Foyle when they came back into power after that particular inter-party government. And this may be so, and you know, the, the, the blame or otherwise would rest largely with, uh, in fact, almost totally with, with the writer of the programme, Frank Hall, uh, because we were vehicles for uh, the satire. We, we just performed what he did, and we never refused uh, to perform anything which he wrote. But I have to say, in defence of the script and in defence of Frank's prodigious output, um, that when that Fianna Fáil government came in, they had no face. Um, Mr Hockey was the leader of that government and was an effective leader of it, but his minions were really rather mohair-suited kind of men. And uh, it was quite some time before any of them had an individual public face. And it's impossible to do a satirical takeoff of somebody on television whom the public doesn't know. I remember specifically Jean Fitzgerald at one time had been a minister for quite some time. And although his name was very well known, 
and he was very well established in political life. His face wasn't very well known outside Munster. And we suddenly realized one day, people won't absolutely know who you're taking off if, if, you, if you do it. Now, subsequently, he became very well known, and it was possible to do takeoffs of him. We did takeoffs of, uh, of course, in the inter-party government, Liam Cosgrave. He was a very identifiable target because he had this hard voice and a kind of hesitant way of talking uh, like that. And Jack Lynch also had a rather breathy overrun in his voice. He was not a very identifiable to He spoke like that. There was never any crisis or any problem of any kind. And it was kind of a vuncular, authoritative, slightly dismissive thing of any cause for concern. So he was another one. He was, uh, so it may be said, incidentally, in that context, that we did indeed have a fair good go at Fianna Fáil because uh, uh, there was Desi, Jack, um, Desi O'Malley got slaughtered many, many times when he came up from Limerick to make pronouncements in the dial. We were in on him like a light. Well, a man who's been in on many politicians like a light in the recent past is Dermot Morgan. He assured me that there really is no malice in what he does to our TDs. It's not malice. It's, it's mischief. I think that's... It feels malicious sometimes, especially when you're really enjoying it. <laughs> but I think it's more... Uh, I think it's more mischief, you know. I think it's it's kind of uh, pointing out the, f- you know, you're, what you're actually saying is that uh, your your local TD has got feet of clay. Uh, <laughs> they keep putting their, their foot in it before all be in the mud. But um, I, I think that's what I mean. I don't when I said start to take off a politician, I, I I'm probably working from, uh, let's say, the language they use and from the way they talk rather than saying, oh, well, now, I think I'll do a political satire in him, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that maybe that's another reason why political satire fe- features so largely in the general body of satire, let's say, that's uh, performed or written in this country. That's because they do, p- politicians do have so much media exposure. Um, they tend to be a natural object. You tend to, to find your targets in the media. I remember hearing... Um, Sean Doherty, when he was under a lot of pressure about uh, the, uh, the phone tapping business, um, he was interviewed and his whole mode of speech, you know, had me going. You know, I mean, I definitely said I want to do that. Equally with uh, Ray McSharry in the in the around, the, I think it was exactly at the same time he was under pressure for uh, taping his conversation with Martin O'Donoghue and. What one picked up on was was the way he he spoke about the subject, but he wouldn't concede certain things. And it, they all have a sort of they tend to have a certain standard TD accent, you know, which mm-hmm. is I'm not prepared to say at the moment. Uh, things are uh, happening. That's a question I don't want to go into. Isn't it gu- isn't it true you're guilty of mass murder? We found bodies in the back garden. There are bodies in your kitchen. There are skeletons in your cupboard. We have documented. No, I. I I wouldn't accept that at all. I've always acted in the interests of my constituents. And this is his kind of general blandness. It's, it's when you see an inflated ego, I think. I think that's what's so, so much fun, is to, to start deflating a large ego. And naturally, I mean, the name of the game for, for a statesman or, or a politician is that uh, they must have a sense of authority, they must have power. 
What I miss most about power is the reins I held and the greenness of the people and the free stationery with Taoiseach's office and a harp on it. And the long evening meetings of the parliamentary party and friends coming in to vote against me and the free stationery with Taoiseach's office and a harp on it. And Sheila de Valera, the way she might look at you. My grandfather was a very great man. And the free stationery with Taoiseach's office and a harp on it. Oh, the money is good, uh, and the Mercedes are free. You could fry an egghead if I still had uh, Martin O'Donoghue. And you could certainly sink Desi O'Malley or George Colley with my free stationery with Taoiseach's office and a harp on it. If I only had my free stationery with Taoiseach's office and a harp on it. The old election fervours have gone from Ireland. The old-time political song was a good one, nothing abstruse about it, and as soon as you saw the words, you knew the tune. Vote, vote, vote for Paddy Riley. Kick old Cantwell out the door. Paddy Riley is our man, and we'll have him if we can, and we'll never vote for Cantwell anymore. No vagueness, no political arguments, no hair-splitting. Any body of men that marched along a country road or up a main street singing that would surely vote for Riley, and no mistake about it. Give three cheers for Jimmy Cantwell, the befriender of the poor and of the sick. Paddy Riley is a fool and he never went to school, whereas Mr James L. Cantwell passed matric. There you had a clear issue, well and truly knit, unconfused by politics or by anything else. Once he sang that in public, there was no going back. You were stuck with a candidate for whom you were singing and it wasn't gentlemanly to change your mind or your song. Vote, vote, vote for Paddy Riley, the man you know, the man your fathers knew. He will bring you better trade and get better prices paid and you'll see that you get better wages too. The answer to Mr Riley's popular and comprehensive programme would come roaring round the corner and blaring over the bridge. Cheer boys, cheer for Jimmy Cantwell. Give him all you've got on polling day. He's a decent man at that. Paddy Riley is a rat. Paddy Riley stole the Withy Horgan's hay. Detecting a slightly personal note beginning to creep into the campaign, Paddy Riley's team were not found wanting. Vote, vote, vote for Paddy Riley. His great-grandfather was out in 98. While the Cantwells had the croup got from eating cabbage soup and the hairy bacon from the super's place. A good rousing campaign song there, penned by Clement Molyneux of Dublin Opinion as a lament for the passing of real politics from Ireland. Now, not all political satire comes from the satirists. Some politicians occasionally like to practice the art. And what they're now going in for, according to Jean Fitzgerald, the Minister for Finance, is strategy. <laughs> strategy. I think Mr Fitzgerald has a severe case of Second World War nostalgia. I think he sees himself... I think he fancies himself in a leather overcoat with a pair of goggles on his brow. I suspect he saw a picture I saw myself when I was a child or a student 
called Rommel Desert Fox. <laughs> and I suspect he, as himself, in his daydreams, cast as the hero of a film like that. Unfortunately, he has come on the set at a time when they were doing a send-up. And the film which he's now cast in is called Rommel Desert Goat. Professor John Kelly, perhaps an unlikely political satirist. Finally, in the best traditions of the Irish folk song, we hear one perspective on the fortunes of a major Irish political party in the 1970s. In the year of our Lord 1970, old Mother Ireland had gone to the wall. The men from the north, they were asking for arms, and the men from the south sent them nothing at all. Some said they'd fight to unite the old sod again Some said they wouldn't and turned a blind eye Some said they thought the whole thing was a card And Jack Lynch said he wouldn't stand idly by Five long years they spent in government Five long years saying nothing at all Five long years they spent in government Learning to dance for being a ball Boland stepped out and Blaney stepped in again Blaney stepped out again Keepin stepped in again Keepin stepped out and Charlie stepped in again Learning to dance for being a ball then Jack heard the story of arms being imported, grenades, guns and rifles, bazookas and all. I decided I'd prosecute them and report it, a bunch of the lads I'd employed in the dawn. Within 24 hours the whole lot were arrested and into the courtroom came TDs and all. Though a few of their minister's powers was divested, the court found them guilty of nothing at all. Five long years they spent in government, five long years saying nothing at all. Five long years they spent in government, learning to dance for being a ball. Poland stepped out, Blaney stepped in again, Blaney stepped out again, Gibbon stepped in again, Gibbon stepped out, and Charlie stepped in again, learning to dance for being a ball. Easy, Sheila. When the country returned to a calm that was sinister, Blaney left out Poland, gone to the wall, and Gibbons held on to his job as a minister. Ha, he appeared to have no say at all. Jack Lynch told them all he was tired of being Taoiseach and going for election and trying to win votes. And Desi was cute as he planned his defection while Charlie and Carly were feeling their oats. Five long years they spent in government, five long years saying nothing at all. Five long years they spent in government learning to dance for being a fall. Jack stepped out, Desi stepped in again, Desi stepped out, and Carly stepped in again, Carly stepped out, and Charlie stepped in again learning to dance for being a fall. Keep the party going, Sheila. Now Charlie is Taoiseach, the rest it is history. Collie back Jack and was down nearly gone. What happened, Jim Gibbons, is surely no mystery. And Desi knew which horse to put his bet on. And so we've a government stronger than ever, the finest that ever held power in the land. One thing to remember, if you were in politics, always be sure to back the right man. Five long years they spent in government, five long years saying nothing at all. Five long years they spent in government, learning to dance for fee in the fall. Jack stepped out, Desi stepped in again, Desi stepped out, and Collie stepped in again, Collie stepped out, and Charlie stepped in again, learning to dance for fee in the fall. Charlie. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.